Hello, this is Stephanie. And this is Brian. Welcome to the making and the remaking of a codependent mind. In this episode, we're doing something a little different. We're bringing in a guest named Jason. Yeah, we're bringing in another codependent mind. Yes. And this is to discuss his experience of codependency, the conditions in his childhood that gave rise to the codependent behaviors, and how those behaviors have shown up throughout his life. We have heard from a lot of listeners about how your story resonates with them and the similarities that they've noted between their story and yours. Mm -hmm. Um, But we also want to recognize that there are a lot of different circumstances that can give rise to codependent behaviors and the lived experience of codependency can present itself in many different ways. So we wanted to start to expand the number of voices in the conversations that we're having about codependency. So if you're interested in sharing your story, please reach out to us at codependentmind at gmail.com. And now let's hear from Jason. Why don't we start with you talking a little bit about your understanding of codependency and how that concept resonates with you or maybe any issues that you have with it? Sure. I didn't really have much of a sense of what codependency was at all until I first started therapy about five years ago. And even now, I find my interpretation of it changing as I spend time listening to the two of you work through the intricacies of what codependency might be. You know, I've fallen into thinking of it in the way that that you characterize it as a, a pattern of effectively maladaptive behaviors that can be exactly the right behaviors to engage in when experiencing significant duress or strain or trauma. But removed from that situation, those same behaviors end up being pretty harmful. And the fact that those behaviors don't actually deal with the trauma at the time that the trauma is happening means that the trauma remains with you. And so you've got both trauma and maladaptive behaviors coming together to set you up for particular kinds of challenges in living a good and healthy life. That's an an exceptional (laughs) definition. Thank you so much for making us sound so clever. It's, It's really, it's all you two. Yeah, so given that, I've been struggling for years to identify the origins in my family of origin of my codependent behaviors. And there are all kinds of things. It's sort of, it was overdetermined that I would develop these maladaptive behaviors, given that I was subjected to physical and emotional abuse by my father when I was quite young. And then after my parents divorced, which was an excellent thing. Uh, Best thing my mother ever did for me was divorce my father. I already had, you know, a sense of reprieve from the initial trauma, but I was, you know, very needy and demanding. And my mother ended up then effectively traumatizing me herself. And I don't believe at any point in time she was doing this intentionally. She would never question anything that she did in how she raised me. It's interesting how you describe yourself as needy and demanding. How old were you when they divorced? Five or six. 
because Brian has also used kind of negative language to describe himself as a very young child. Yeah, I wonder if that that, if that language may have just been coming from your mom and it might have been a story that you stuck with. I, I suspect that's entirely true. Because that, that's what happened to me, yeah. When I would have a conversation, even now, when I have conversations with my mom, it would always be things like, you were you were really difficult, you cried a lot, and I had to, I, I had to figure out ways to to calm you down and things like that. It was just like this kind of narrative that I was a difficult child that you just stuck with. Hello, this is Brian. I wanted to let you know that I wrote a book based on the first two seasons of this podcast, and it's now available on Amazon. It represents my most current thinking on both the origins of my codependency and the healing process. I think it's a good companion to the podcast. Um, so if you're someone who also likes to read as well as listen, uh, you might want to check it out. The link is in the show notes. I think that that's the same is true in my case. You know, I, I certainly don't think of myself as a particularly needy or demanding person. And that doesn't mean that I'm fully independent and always satisfied. It just means that that's not the way that I've ever chosen to present myself to the world. And I don't think I'm just telling myself a story that I'm not needy and demanding. Uh, but that's certainly the the narrative that I was left with. I mean, it sounds like it may have been true in that your needs were not getting met. That is certainly the case. My needs weren't getting met as a child, right? So, you know, it certainly could have been the case uh, that your mother having exited a violent relationship, now being a single mother, would have been perhaps overwhelmed by the demands that you placed on her, even if they were perfectly appropriate. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. So I, you know, working with my therapist, I have decided to focus on one particular set of experiences as as a kind of traumatic origin, because it helps explain the negative self-talk that's persisted in my adult life. Happy to report the negative self-talk is virtually non-existent now. I mean, there was a time when I would catch it fairly regularly, and there was a time when I didn't even realize it was negative self-talk. It was just self-talk. But over the uh, over the past couple of years, that intrusive negative self-talk has has disappeared. But what it's always amounted to whenever it has appeared is that I'm not enough. I'm not good enough, smart enough. I don't work hard enough. I'm not attractive enough. I, you know, fill in the blank. Uh, mm -hmm. no, no matter the prompt, I'm not enough. And so that's what I've lived with for a long time. And so one of the origins of that is after my parents split up, and I, I really can't give you a timeline on this because I'm not going to fact check it with my mom, and I don't know how else I could fact check the timeline. <laughs> but sometime between when I was six and 10, I started overeating as a form of self-medication. And my mother would get really upset about this. My mother has always been a tiny, trim person. I was thin and fit for about eight months, 15 years ago. Otherwise, I've always been a heavier person, and it started in my childhood. And my mother's reaction to it was always very, very destructive of my ego, my sense of, of myself. Uh, she would threaten to put a lock on the 
refrigerator door so that I wouldn't snack without her knowledge. Um, she enrolled me when I was in the sixth grade in a lunch club for fat kids at my school where nutritionists would take a look at our packed lunches and tell us what we should be eating instead. And for my mom, this was a way of her trying to control this aspect of me that she couldn't otherwise control. And I don't remember whether it was before or after that experience. My mom enrolled me in a clinical study at the local university that was about a 45-minute drive away from home. And I don't remember all the details. I think it was monthly meeting that was effectively a weigh-in for the other, for myself and the other children that were enrolled. And whoever lost the most weight would earn some points toward a toy of their choosing. And uh, I don't remember how often it was that a toy was given out, let's say every couple of months. And it was a big deal because we would all go with the clinical director of this program to the mall uh, beside the university and go to the toy store or the model store, the model plane store or whatever. We would all go and watch the kid who had done the best job losing weight pick out their toy. And that was meant to be celebratory, but it also always felt punitive unless you were the kid who happened to have starved yourself a little bit more than the other kids that month. It sounds very punitive. It sounds like this was a uh, experiment in creating childhood shame. And I think if if that were the endpoint of the study, the study worked magically well um, in creating childhood shame. Because ever since then, I've had so much shame uh, around food in particular. And, you know, I would get the kind of feedback from my mom that, you know, I just need to try a little harder. And, you know, next month, it'll be me getting the toy. And she was, I mean, I want to use the word supportive. I mean, I think that that's, that's what she thought she was doing. She was supporting me in this effort. But it wasn't an effort I wanted to be involved in. And uh, she would then give me all kinds of little backhanded compliments like, oh, you look so good today. You'd look so much better if your face weren't so fat. Or you'd be so much more handsome if you didn't carry all that extra weight. And I would get this from that moment in the university study. I would get that all the way through to, I mean, today. I mean, I still mm-hmm. get it today. But for me, it changed into, I mean, it, it led to a a period of of anorexic behavior uh, in my mid-teens when I was about 15. I would eat a bowl of rice and a pot of coffee every day. That was it. And the ambition was to finally lose that weight. And in part, it was because, you know, there were a lot of things going on in the family. Uh, my mom was quite ill for a while there, and we were left in the care of other people until we got old enough to be uh, left alone. And we had just, my sister and I had very different kinds of ways of coping with this. But for me, it was, it had always been food. And now I thought, well, no, now I'm going to 
take control in another way and I'm going to take food out of the occasion. And so I ended up going from about 195 pounds to 135 pounds. You know, I was never going to look good as a 135 pounder, even as a 15 year old. And I certainly wasn't fit nor healthy. I was pretty beat down and my muscles had atrophied and Mm. I was in a pretty bad space. And that eventually led to me putting the weight back on and then some. And I didn't try again to lose weight till I was in my late 30s. At least I didn't formally try. I mean, I would always try to eat a little bit better, but I would always take comfort in food. And even though I had a ton of food-related shame, nonetheless, the food would soothe me. And I realized in talking with my therapist about this recently that the only times that I feel fully safe and secure are when I'm fat and when I'm alone, because I trust myself now not to hurt myself anymore. So I'm safe with myself. And if I'm fat, then I can blame any kind of rejection on the fact that I'm heavy. In other words, I don't want to be the guy who finds out when he loses the weight that he's actually not that much better looking. And so, and he's, I didn't, I don't want to be the guy who, you know, starts thinking that the only reason that I'm not in a relationship is because I'm fat, but that's a pretty safe place to live right now. This is reminding me of something we talked about in an earlier episode uh, that came from the book, The Body Keeps Score. There's a discussion around how often kind of problems that we identify people having are actually solutions. Hmm. And in order to kind of understand them, you need to see them as solutions. And that's kind of what you're talking about, that the food being overweight is a problem for you in, in some ways, but at the core of it, it's a solution. It's a solution that you turn to consistently in your life. And it's the safest of all the solutions I've turned to in my life. Right. So the idea is that it's, it's not that you need to lose weight, it's that you need a different solution to the the problems and the emotional pain that currently food uh, and weight are providing you. That That seems exactly right. Because if you think back, you know, describing yourself again as, as a needy and demanding child, your needs weren't getting met. Your mother, we're not putting it all on your mother in terms of blame, but she was not able to meet your needs. And so you turned to food to try to get some of those needs for, for comfort and for pleasure met. And, and then that's also taken away from you. So you, you, you kind of asserted yourself a little bit as a child, trying to meet your own needs through food and through eating. And then then you're getting messages. Not only are you powerless in terms of being able to get other people to meet your needs, you're now you're powerless against food, right? That was a message your mom was giving you. Exactly. Exactly. If you could see me, I'm nodding my head vigorously. Yeah. And, and when you lost the weight, it obviously was probably just to satisfy her, not because you wanted to lose the weight. But like you said, you didn't really want, you didn't care about that, really. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so the way that this transitions for me into talking about personal relationships, aside from my, you know, personal relationship with food, is that this anorexia thing happened during the time that I was dating my first, you know, kind of girlfriend uh, shortly after that. And I see the relationships I was involved in 
from about 15 until at least into my 30s as all kind of causally connected to each other. And so I will, um, I'll explain that. I was dating somebody in high school and she described me when I lost all that weight as looking cute, but I could lose more. And um, so even that, that I'd been through wasn't enough. I, I was still not enough. And so then I basically glommed on to the next person who showed me any interest. And that happened again in college. Uh, when I was a senior in college, I met this you know, gorgeous woman, Jay, that I had such a such a crush on, and I was I was convinced that she was way out of my league. But but I'm a pretty affable person and pretty gregarious, and so we ended up becoming friends. And then that ended up transitioning into a relationship. But she wanted the relationship to remain secret because she didn't want people, as she put it, knowing her business. But it became fairly clear to me over the course of our relationship that based on things that she said, I, I was not the person she wanted to present the world as being with. So, you know, being in public with me was fine if we were friends, but it was not going to be a public thing. And eventually I stood up to that and moved away to graduate school, but we were still dating. And it was a incredibly volatile time and she would cheat on me regularly and then call me up while the guy was still there. And I put up with it. I spent hundreds of dollars. This is back in the day when you had to pay for long distance. I spent mm. hundreds of dollars on long distance bills, uh, trying to win her back or something to that effect. I, I mean, it's hard even to put it into words, not least because it's something I would never stand for today, but, but I took it in stride back then. And then things only changed when somebody else, R, uh, demonstrated. You notice a pattern here, Brian, by the way, J yeah, and R. Man, yeah, boy, women with J and R. These are just, just for the other listeners, these are not the same J and R. <laughs> no, they are not the same J and R. Uh, so this R was, again, somebody who I thought of as way, way out of my league. And I developed a crush on her because she was kind to me. Uh, and so she and I hooked up and I broke up with Jay and then R and I dated for a while, but she also wanted to keep our relationship a secret. And her stated reason was that she didn't want anybody knowing her business. And so I ended up being involved with her for at least six months, maybe more really, really intimately. But the only people who knew that we were together at all were my housemates. And that's because she would come over and, you know, we'd spend the weekend in bed and I'd cook for her and it was amazing. And it became clearer and clearer to me that she just didn't want people to know she was dating me. And again, I chalked it up to me being heavy, although it's not clear that that was the reason why. And then, um, in that fall, so I started dating her in August, uh, in March, and that fall, I was set up, because nobody knew I was dating anybody, I was set up on a blind date. And so uh, I went on that date, and this person, D, was very excited to be seen with me in public, 
And so I married her. Uh, It turns out we were not well matched in all kinds of ways. And I still, even though I was, you know, at least on the surface, happily married to a successful woman who was just finishing a professional master's degree, I ended up violating our relationship by going on a chat line and meeting somebody who I thought was better um, because, you know, I didn't, I didn't deserve to be in this kind of happy marriage is sort of what I felt. Um, but at the same time, um, even though I was, I, I felt like I kind of deserved something better, but the better turned out to be a massive catfishing situation that saw me leave my ex-wife. So leave D and be semi-homeless for a month or so, just or two months, I guess, floating around on people's couches until I was able to afford a a down payment for, um, or a deposit rather, for a small apartment for myself. And I still hadn't met the catfishing person in person, but then I met her and she was just the complete opposite of what she had told me she was or led me to believe. And I felt so guilty, one, about rejecting her. She was morbidly obese, like 440 pounds or something. Um, I, I felt guilty about sort of rejecting somebody based at least in part on their weight. And I felt so guilty about and so ashamed of having abandoned a perfectly good marriage for this that I sort of stuck it out. And when I moved to a new city to start a job, I actually moved her and her daughter with me, even though there was no relationship, there was no intimacy, there was no nothing. I sort of felt somehow responsible for this person until I realized that she was catfishing a bunch of other guys at the same time as living with me and taking my money and yada, yada. So... So then I broke up with her and sent her back to where she came from. And then I was just sort of waiting around, you know, a couple of little potential relationships here and there. But it was when I then met my second ex-wife and we met in the same way that I met the catfish person on a chat line. After I met her, I sort of felt this is as good as it's going to get for me. And so I definitely settled for for my second wife. She was a lovely person, but not the right person for me to be married to. But I didn't really have any sense of who I should be married to or even whether I should be married. I mean, I've reached a point now where I feel I am undateable until I make a lot more progress because I don't want to hurt somebody like I've hurt every partner since then. And so what I've done is just transitioned from this this moment 20 years ago, 21 years ago, where I felt I wasn't, I didn't deserve anything more. And so took what I was given. Uh, I've used that as a kind of motivation for not settling ever again, because of course, in the same relationship, I 
you know, was not anywhere near as well behaved. I've always been a self-saboteur. And while I don't blame the demise of the marriage on myself, um, every relationship I've had since then has been me trying to kind of exert control in a relationship by being the one who initiates the breakup. It sounds like there's definitely threads of shame and fear in all of these relationships that your interpersonal relationships since childhood have been dominated by these two emotions, shame and fear. Absolutely. And to get out of the romantic life um, situation, I also managed to surround myself. So while I don't believe I've ever dated a narcissist, I certainly have worked with plenty of them and mentored them and launched their careers and been effectively abused throughout the process. But at least I was successful at that in my mind. And so it was, it was worthwhile. So part of the healing process for me has been to disconnect from toxic people to, you know, if a toxic person happened to owe me some money, for instance, I just forgave the debt because I didn't want to be in contact with, with people who brought that kind of toxicity into my life. Yeah. So one thing I was hearing in, in, in a lot of these transitions from one relationship to another, it was kind of, well, this person showed me attention or this person was nice to me. So you were kind of almost as if uh, you felt as though you had to make it worth their while. A hundred percent. In fact, this is why I'm actually pretty bad at dating because if I go on a date and it goes better than terrible, I feel then that I owe that person something. Mm-hmm. And so I've ended up in long-term relationships based on a single, not terrible date. Yeah, that sounds very familiar. Yeah, That's one of the reasons why I'm not dating right now, uh, because I don't know that I'm strong enough to resist that sense. Uh, I don't know if I have all the coping mechanisms or survival strategies to navigate dating without feeling I owe somebody something if we happen to get along. So that's the, the people-pleasing the strong people pleasing that was instilled upon you, it sounds like, from from your childhood. Absolutely. First by your father that in order just to protect you physically, to literally keep you physically safe, you had to do whatever you needed to do to please him. Absolutely. And then spending years trying to please your mother mm-hmm. so that she would give you the care and the love that, that you needed. So the the relationship with my mom is an interesting one because it has, you know, it's my longest standing relationship of any sort. And it's been fine over the last number of years because I've started to manage it well. And I manage it well with boundaries. There are certain conversations I'm unwilling to have. So any conversation that starts with my weight or my appearance, I shut down immediately. And my stepfather, fortunately, is supportive of that. In as much as, you know, if my mom starts to say something like that, sometimes even before I have to say something, he cuts her off and says, we don't need to talk about that uh, or something to that effect, which goes well. And then even, you know, to give you a sort of recent example on Thursday uh, or Friday. So a couple of days ago, I got a text message from my mom saying that they had a power outage due to a big storm and I was out with a friend. So I texted back and said, you know, I'm having happy hour with a friend of mine, but I'll call you tomorrow morning. And then the next morning rolled around. And to be honest, I didn't really feel like talking to my mom. So I didn't call her first thing. And so about three hours after I thought of this, so, you know, early in the afternoon for me in my time zone, 
my mom called and started the conversation with, I thought you were going to call us this morning. And she does it with this kind of little sing-songy teasing voice. And I flat out refuse to smile uh, or engage that. And I say, yeah, I guess I forgot. So how are you doing now? And just sort of change the subject. Uh, Because otherwise, if I let that get to me, that kind of attempt to guilt me at the beginning of a phone call, it'll be a terrible phone call. So I just need to nip it in the bud. And I've been able to do that successfully. In those moments when you're starting out to try to break this people-pleasing habit that has not served you. Yeah, it's terrifying not to not to be a people-pleaser. And don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean being a people-pleaser and pleasing people are not the same thing. I used to, you know, almost seek out people that I felt needed rescued or saving or something. And I would do that precisely because it would make me feel important and needed and desired in particular kinds of ways. And they're easier to please. So much easier to please. Than your mother ever was. <laughs> Absolutely. And I've been really, really careful more recently to just not think of other people's situations as something that I need to solve. I mean, if anything, I need to solve my own situation and I'm working on that. But I definitely have pulled back from that whole sense of the world where the only way I'm going to be able to respect myself and get respect from others is by pleasing them. And, you know, this leached into my professional life as well as into my personal life for decades. But in the last couple of years, I have decided that pleasing people is something that I choose to do on a case-by-case basis. I don't characterize myself as a people pleaser anymore, but the transition was a very challenging one, sort of terminating relationships with toxic people, people who who would take advantage of me, making sure that I establish boundaries. If, you know, somebody reached out to me in need of something, I would, you know, on, on occasion, I'll, I'll certainly say, yes, obviously, that's what friends do. Um, but I try to do it in the sort of least intrusive or least overbearing way possible. And I try to make clear if I do do something that it that it's sort of like a, a one-time thing. But you're still finding, in general, interpersonal relationships as still potentially a source of shame and fear. Absolutely. And so I, I'm really cautious. And that is really demanding. Um, I think of myself as a fairly introverted person who, in the right company, when I hang out with close friends that do nothing but uplift me, I have no trouble just relaxing and being myself. But in other social settings, I still find myself very much on edge. And that means that those social interactions take a lot out of me. And I find myself needing to withdraw and sort of isolate in order to have the strength to do it again the next day or the day after that. So absolutely. And as far as dating goes, I know that at some point I will be dateable again, or dateable for the first time, maybe is the right way to put that, where I'd be secure enough in myself that the person I chose to date would be worth my time and energy, would give me back as much as I gave them. So I know that that will happen. I'm hopeful that that will happen. I'm just not sure how I'll know it when it happens. And so I've decided the easiest way to maintain this sense of 
undateability and working on myself is to refuse to go on dating apps. Um, and in particular, because I don't want to find myself swept back into something that undermines all the progress that I've made on myself. I'm curious about the you using the word un, undateable. Yeah. Because that suggests that there's still something defective or, or wrong with you. Yeah, I, I think of this as sort of owning the language, though, because even though the word might not be the right word, what it captures for me is this sense that my past actions in relationships have been shameful. Appropriately, this is an appropriate sense of shame I'm bringing. I'm ashamed of how I behaved in my past relationships, intimate relationships. And so until I'm confident that I am capable of being in a genuine, intimate relationship without fear that I will self-sabotage and sabotage the relationship and violate someone's trust and hurt them deep in their soul, until I'm confident that I can enter a relationship without that being the case, yeah, it's about me. There's still a deficit on my part, but it's not the same kind of deficit. It's, it's not an externally imposed deficit it's not something that comes directly from trauma. It's something, it's an appropriate kind of, of way of viewing myself as owning up to what I've done in the past and committing not to do it again. What do you think it would take for you to get to that place where you trust yourself enough? I feel I'm getting there, Brian. I do feel that I've made some, I do feel the decision not to go on the apps when I'm not quite ready has been a good sign that at least I'm starting to understand myself better. And I have surrounded myself with the kinds of people who satisfy almost all of my needs for intimacy through friendships. And I haven't hurt or disappointed them. So I think I'm on a good path now. I'll just point out that intimate relationships are scary places for all of us, friendships or romantic relationships. I don't think there's a person alive who is not hurt or disappointed the people that they love and who love them. Every relationship you get into, you're going to potentially let that person down and let yourself down. I have certainly done both of those things. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right about that. And so... Well, and I don't consider myself undateable. <laughs> Well, you are. I mean, I'm happily married. That's true. I'm undateable and that I'm happily married. Uh, I'm not currently dating. <laughs> <laughs> we don't call it that. <laughs> so, I, you know, I'm just wondering if that's some lingering language of codependency. When, when you consider the hurt of someone else, then the shame that comes from that is overwhelming. And, and sometimes it may be that you did behaviors that, that you're not proud of, but sometimes it may be that, that just people get hurt and that we're not always our best selves in, in relationships. And so can I, I can imagine, you know, you describe being in social situations as exhausting. I can imagine that that's true if you feel in those social situations that you have to be your best self all the time. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, I'm not going into this with a sense of, of um, you know, idealized perfection of relationships or anything like that. So I know that there will be ups and downs and disappointments and so on uh, in any relationship, healthy or otherwise. But what I am trying to do is take control over my own agency in causing pain to others because of my own trauma. And you think you're able to understand what those are? You think you've taken a good look at 
some of those behaviors and, and really figured out why you thought they happened and whether or not you found them appropriate or inappropriate? Oh, you're still working on that. You don't have to have all figured out. Right. But I definitely have been working on that, Brian. I mean, that's really yeah. been the recovery process for me has really just been focused on being honest with myself about what I've done. That's the first step. And also honest with myself about what I've been through, whether I'm responsible for it or not. And that the process is, is as you know, very challenging. It's hard to be honest and vulnerable. Yeah, it doesn't feel good to think about a lot of that stuff, especially the ones that are your own behaviors. But then also, to be honest about ways you were treated. Because you may have been in codependent mode and, and feeling as though it was your fault somehow when, when it wasn't. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, I, I really don't, I just don't want to replicate my behaviors that I know I've, I've engaged in intimate partner relationships. I just don't want to do that to somebody else again. But it's not in order to protect them as much as it is to protect myself too. Well, we certainly wish you all the, the best and, and the love and the courage that we can offer as you continue on this work. It sounds like you've just done so much already and, and been through so much. It's, it's really inspiring and, and, you know, kind of sad. And, and uh, you know, we certainly feel for you. And we really, really appreciate you coming and, yeah, share, you. and sharing your story and, and contributing to this conversation. Uh, we know there's a, a lot of listeners who have struggled in this way and hearing from another voice that, that they're not alone, I think is going to be meaningful to them. Well, thank you so much for saying that. And let me just say right back at you, the work you've done with this podcast has been really important to me and I'm sure to many others. And so please, please, please continue to make this as long as you possibly can. Thank you. Thank you. And we hope all of you uh, will continue to join us and, and we hope to hear from you as well. As always, you can find us online uh, on social media by searching uh, Codependent Mind.